Well, I'm standing before you today because because of the because of prayer. Uh, if you're a believer, you have one who is praying for you. His name is Jesus. And you also hopefully have others who are joined together praying for you with Jesus. And we'll see some of that in our passage this morning. Matthew chapter 18. Let me begin by reading verses 15 through 20. Our focus is going to be verses 18 through 20. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, truly, verily, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth, is that even possible? It's a big deal. If two of you agree on earth, that's a big emphasis here by our Lord, is this idea of, of agreeing, of being together. And I don't think it's just two necessarily. But it's so significant that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything or any matter, really is a more literal way to translate that, that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For, or because, there's an explanation where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, last week we considered, especially from verses 15 through 17, the process that Jesus has given to citizens of his kingdom to deal with conflicts that are caused by sin. By the way, that's what sin does. It it not only causes conflict in your own soul and heart and life, it can cause conflicts in relationships as well. And that's what Jesus has in view here. He wants us to experience, not just say we have unity, not just think about the theory of unity, and not even just to be assured of our union in Christ and our union together, but actually to experience Unity in our relationships, which, by the way, is a testimony to the world. And, and you can read that in, in Jesus' prayer in John 17, 21 through 23. It's not just the idea of unity that makes a statement to the world. It's the world observing. Observing it. 
as it's worked out in our lives here in their presence. The world is spoken to. It's affected. And so when sin causes division, we can't ignore it. We must seek to restore what sin has broken. Besides that, last week, we'll continue, Lord willing, next week to also speak along those lines. Because this is done by repentance and forgiveness. And we're going to really focus on that idea of forgiveness, Lord willing, next week as we proceed into the rest of Matthew 18. As we saw last week, the church, what Jesus calls the church, has a significant role in the process of resolving relational conflicts. So I want us to think especially about what Jesus says to us in verses 18 through 20, which I am convinced is especially speaking of the church. And really, though it's not fully developed, it is touching upon what is very important in the mind, the heart of Jesus in relationship to what we know to be the New Testament church. And so it's important to understand what church means in the New Testament. You might think this is somewhat of a digression, but it really isn't, because I think it's necessary for CBC, as well as those who are visiting among us, to have an understanding of what we, under, of what we understand church to mean when we speak of church. And so I'm going to deal with that for a few moments here at the outset. Now, church was a familiar, the word church was a familiar concept among Jews. The word that's translated church here. It was also a very common word in the Greek-speaking world. It could have referred to any official gathering, including the Sanhedrin, which was the highest Judicial court for the Jews. The word is used in Acts chapter 19 and verses 39 and 41. For sake of time, I'm not going to go there and read it. But if you look it up, Acts 19 verses 39 and 41. And I think one other time in that passage, it is translated assembly. But it's the same word, church. And it's talking about an assembly that was in the, in the, the, the region of Ephesus. There was an uproar. And they and there was an unlawful, it's called the word lawful assembly is actually the way it is referred to. But what, but what does Jesus mean by church? As he uses it here in this passage. Well, it ought to seem obvious to all of us that it is something identifiable and it's something that's organized. Right? I mean, verse 17, tell it to the church. So it's not something that's unseen, invisible. It's, it's, it's not a mysterious entity. It's something that can be identified. It's something that has some sort of organization enough to be able to actually go and actually say, speak, and for the, and for the church to hear. Okay? That's, that's the language of the text. Now from chapter 16 and verse 18, where Jesus also uses the word, he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. We can conclude that it is an assembly that is dependent upon Jesus. And we can conclude that it is something new. It is distinct from the Jewish assemblies under the Mosaic economy. So this is not simply a continuation In verses 18 through 20, Jesus speaks to the apostles. 
Not just Peter, as he did in chapter 16 and verse 18, though I think there it's to Peter as he represented the apostles. Here he clearly speaks to the group in verse 18. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, that's a plural, corporately I'm speaking to you, apostles. And while surely they didn't understand church, as we now understand from the rest of the New Testament, Jesus is speaking to them knowing that they would serve in the foundation of the church, right? And so the language that Jesus uses here, especially in verse 20, leads me to conclude that he has New Testament churches in mind in what he says. He does not have unregenerate Jewish gatherings like a, like a synagogue or even like the Sanhedrin in mind as he's speaking here. He says in verse 20, he says, for where two or three are gathered together, that doesn't sound like, that sounds like it's anywhere. So there's possibilities of more than one gathering. And then he says, I am there in the midst of them. And that language, I am there in the midst of them, is actually very similar to the words that Jesus used later on after the resurrection, after the ascension, when he was speaking to the church at Ephesus and really to all the churches. And he said this in Ephesians, or excuse me, Revelation 2 and verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of The seven golden candlesticks. And the seven golden candlesticks clearly are the seven churches, which Revelation 1 tells us. So we don't have to guess at that. These are churches. You also read in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12, there's a prophetic word from Psalm 22 and verse 22 that is being quoted there in in Hebrews 2 and verse 12 referring to Jesus and what he is doing. It says, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. The old King James says church there, translates it church. In the midst of the church or assembly, I will sing praise to you. So while it's possible that the apostles heard church and thought synagogue or some other Jewish establishment, We read what Jesus is saying here in light of the rest of Revelation. So the conclusion, I believe, is undeniable that church here is talking about what we understand to be New Testament churches. And so what is what is what is that? What is a New Testament church? And here I just survey quickly some thoughts, and I say that because if Some of you have questions that aren't answered. Please seek me out and talk to me. But the word church is not just any sporadic gathering of believers at any time. And so when you read in in verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. He's not saying that's the definition of a church. And so just any gathering anywhere of any believers, that's a church. That's not the point. Church in Scripture most often refers to an an identifiable number of saints. An identifiable number of saints. Believers who are saints, they're believers. And a church are believers who are baptized following their experience of faith in Christ. 
They're meeting regularly in a given location. And they are functioning together in a committed, accountable manner under recognized leadership. That's a pretty good definition of a church, I think, from the New Testament. Okay? Now, let me flesh it out just a little bit. Not a lot. Paul writes to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18, he says, When you come together as a church. So there's a coming together, you see. He's speaking to the church at Corinth. Identify, an identifiable group who's coming together. In, in Acts chapter 14 and verse 27. Antioch is, is, Paul is back at Antioch and he's giving a report of his missionary journey and he says, now, now when they had come and gathered the church together, so the church can be gathered together. They reported all that God had done with them and what he had opened. And that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So he's reporting to the church. That's not a universal, invisible, whatever. That's an identifiable group. Now, don't get me wrong. There is the idea of, of, of church, I think, that is, that is used. That is a broader, more collective view of all saints of all time that will gather the glorious church without spot or wrinkle. But it's still possible to gather because we will one day. Okay, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, Paul was coming through Troas. And it says, now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until until midnight. The New Testament revelation speaks directly and by implication to the practical relationship between committed believers. This is where it gets really important and ties into our, our passage. A com- committed believers meeting in specific locations who relate to those who have a responsibility to oversee them. Now, and you ought to be asking yourself, am I in this kind of relationship? Does what I read in Scripture describe me and my relationship? And so, Acts 20 and verse 28, Paul speaking to the elders from Ephesus, he says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. All the flock. What's that talking about? I mean, that's talking about all believers everywhere? Are y'all thinking with me here? I don't want to just get in preacher mode where y'all just zone out. Okay? No, it's all the flock. Over the which the Holy Ghost has made you, elders, overseers. That's a specific church. To shepherd the church of God. Did those elders have the responsibility to shepherd all believers everywhere? No. It's, it's that flock which he purchased with his own blood. Now, that's an identifying mark of the flock. They're ones that have been purchased by the blood of Christ, which is true of all believers everywhere, Right? Then in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, the elders who were among you, I exhort, Peter says, let me skip down to verse 2, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. And then in verse 3, but being examples to the flock. So it's an identifiable group of believers. Hebrews 13, 17, obey those who rule over you. Who are they? And be submissive. There's a, you hear a relationship here. Don't hear 
Don't hear tyranny. Don't hear lordship. Hear a relationship here. And be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy. Let them do so indicates there's a relationship going on here. You see, Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So my question is, do you have this kind of mutual relationship so that you can say, I'm part of a church? Church in the New Testament is a body of believers which you may join and from which you may be dismissed. Okay? Can you hear that? So that's more than just attending services. You're you're actually in a committed relationship. So that there can be what we're talking about in Jesus' words. You know, if, if you do get... If it's a problem and you're you're wayward, there's the church that you belong to that can address that, that can help you minister to you. And you see this really uh, throughout the New Testament. And for sake of time, I don't want to belabor the point. But listen, think about this, because some people have this idea of church that's 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 not that. And there, there's a there's a difference between in this context in which we're speaking, there's a difference between church and the kingdom of heaven. You're not born into the church. I can't see that in Scripture, but you are born into the kingdom. You cannot be dismissed from the kingdom once you're in. But you can be dismissed from the church. You say, what about the universal church? I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about the church as it's primarily viewed in Scripture. Okay? You enter, and there's a relationship. And this is so critical. It's not just an organization. There's a relationship. Church is not a loose and distant relationship. It's the visible, practical expression of the spiritual union that all believers have in Christ by the Spirit. And you're expressing that in that dynamic called church. You know, we might even talk about baptism. Baptism is a physical thing. But if you don't have the spiritual reality, you shouldn't be physically baptized, right? So there's a spiritual dynamic behind all of these physical expressions that we're talking about. So then, those gathering in one place are responsible for that community. So Community Baptist Church, you, we are responsible for the community that makes up this church, including dealing with any who are living in unrepentant sin. And you see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul says to that church, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 and 5, in the name, listen, this is really interesting, because it's very, very similar to the wording of our text. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in my name. So, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together. That's the very same word that is used in Acts, or excuse me, Matthew 18, 20. 
along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. You hear the authority there. And he says, deliver such an one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of, of the Lord Jesus. Do you hear that? This, what's the purpose of this level of discipline? It's the purpose is salvation. It's not destruction. It's the destruction of the flesh, but so that there might be salvation of the Spirit, so that you might not be lost. And then down in verses 12 and 13 of 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Outside of what? Outside of what? Uh, this is not outside of, of, of spiritual. He's not talking of the spiritual entity here. Although, again, you can make that application. Here he's talking about the church. He says, for, for what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Church, he's talking to you. You make judgments. But those who are outside, God judges Therefore, put away from among yourselves the evil, the evil person. This time permits, I'll, I'll come back to a thought that's connected with that passage later. Now, while we might, coming back to Matthew 18, while we might discuss differences regarding the meaning of church in the minds of the Jewish disciples at this point, and not all of us may agree on that, we must not miss the spirit of truth that Jesus is putting before them and us. The kingdom of heaven, visibly seen in churches, involves relationships. And by the way, some of us are not so good with relationships. And some of us are just more natural with it, right? I mean, it's just, this is personality stuff there. But no one has an excuse in Christ with the Holy Spirit in you to avoid relationships. Now, that doesn't mean you have the same level of relationship with every single believer. That's not the point. But as I'll emphasize again later, Isolation is never the solution or the answer. Isolation. Doing it alone. Doing it alone. I mean, lest I forget to make the point, I think I will make it later, but uh, if two agree in prayer, you say, well, I, I don't need anybody else. I'm a prayer warrior. Jesus says two. Get together. Right? He doesn't say don't pray alone. He doesn't say don't, don't pray in private. We know how important that is. But in this context, there's the emphasis of together. He does not intend for us to live individualistic spirits, but in community. By the way, that was also true in Old Testament Israel. Not just New Testament church. So that is a carryover. There's always continuity and discontinuity between the old and new. That's a whole other subject. But the New Testament church involves pursuing life in Christ together. Are you hearing this? It's not about just showing up to a church service, right? It's about pursuing life in Christ together. Learning from one another. Challenging one another. Contributing spiritual gifts for the good of the body. To grow up into Christ together. 
Church is the expression of Christ's body in this world. And maintaining proper relationships depends upon the kind of spirit that Jesus is pressing in this message. And I think particularly verses 18 through 19. We must have a perspective that's bigger than ourselves. And we will not hear what the Spirit is saying. And will ignore sinful conflict negatively impacting the experience of unity in Christ if we are not seeing beyond ourselves. So Jesus continues in verses 18 through 20. I'm shifting now. Hopefully I've said enough to at least maybe convince you that we're talking about the nature of the church, the, the, the kind of church that we're talking about as far as this is not just some invisible entity. Okay, and so he says in verse 18, assuredly, verse 19, again, and verse 20, for. So he's connecting here. These are connecting words. It's a continuing thought from verses 15 through 17. And I'm going to begin with verse 20. And the reason I'm doing that is because of the word for. It's like an explanation. So let's, let's begin there and then we'll go back and then touch upon verses 18 and 19. In verse 20, there is identity and communion with Christ in a true New Testament church. There's identity and communion. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And you may be thinking back, I thought you said that that's not necessarily the definition of a church. Well, I don't think it necessarily is. But those who are being spoken of here are in a church. And so it's representative of what's going on in a New Testament church. And he says, where two or three are gathered together in my name. In other words, this is not just any gathering. It's not just Christians getting together to watch a football game together or, or Christians getting together to do anything or just a group of people identifying in some way, somehow. This is gathering in my name, Jesus says. In other words, he's the motivation for the gathering. He's the bond. He's the unifying interest. Think about this, church. We are more than a religious, nonprofit, charitable organization that you can just kind of get a little help with come tax time. We are not DBA CBC. Y'all know what that means? Doing business as CBC. We're not doing business in that sense. We, we are, we are, this is unique. We're doing what we're doing in the name of Jesus Christ. Our existence is dependent upon Him. It's dependent upon His gospel. It's dependent upon the order that He has established. As we saw in Acts 20 and verse 28, was it? This, this is a, this church bought, purchased by the blood of, of God. Right? The God man. We're purchased. We're born of His Spirit. We're indwelt 
by Him. You remember that phrase? Members one of another. And this is where it is, is lived out. We are not a legislative body. We're not a rule-making body. That's called commandments of men. And by the way, too many of our churches, and sometimes they have Baptist in their name, have been rule-making bodies. That's not why we're together. We teach what Jesus commanded. And we don't do it by dot-to-dot reasoning. Well, Jesus said this, so if He said this, it must mean this, and if it means that, it must mean this. And before you know it, Jesus' commands are somewhere way back there. You know, we've got our own commands going on. We have to be careful there. It's not, that's not what we are. We come together in His name. And every time we come together, we need to think about that. We're gathering together in His name. That ought to be, that ought to stir our thoughts a little bit and prepare us for our coming together, by the way, which we'll emphasize here in a few moments in particular. But we're under His authority. We're living and we're functioning as He says. If we are, that's a New Testament church. So everything about a New Testament church is done under the authority of King Jesus. He's the head of the church, by the way. Moses is not the head of the church. Now, that may open up a can of worms. You might want me to chase after that. I'm not going to, but I'm just throwing that out there. Moses is not the head of the church. Jesus is. He's the final word. He's the final. He's the capital W-O-R-D. Moses isn't. Now, Moses communicated that which was given to him by the triune God. And Jesus, no doubt, was was a part, the Son of God was part of that. But He has come. And He has established the final testament. That is significant. And so we listen to Him. By the way, this is unique to the New Testament church. This separates us from all other religious groups, whether it be Jewish or whether it be Muslim or whether it be Hindu or whether it be whatever. I mean, they all have prayers. They all do a lot of things. But we, we gather and we function in the name of Jesus. We pray in His name. And where this is true, what does Jesus say in verse 20? He says, I am there. Wow. I'm there. He said, where is Jesus? Very often, He says, I am there. In the midst of them, I'm there. How is He here? Well, you know that. We've touched upon that even recently. It's by the presence of the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ sent by Him from His Father. The Father gave, you read it in Acts chapter 2, the Father gave Him the promise and He sent. And He is, Ephesians chapter 2 Sometimes, well, let me just read it. Verses 20 through 22. Paul wrote, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's the church. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. There's a bigger view here in whom the whole building 
being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's something bigger than any one particular individual church. But notice what he says in the very next verse, verse 22. He says, in whom you talking to the Ephesian church, he says, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. And so as we gather in the name of Jesus Christ, truly gather and are functioning in the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus says, I am in the midst. And by the way, when the light goes out, when the candlestick is removed, he's no longer in the midst because he is the light. The spirit of Christ is the light that lights up the church. You see, we're dependent upon him. He says Two or three, where two or three are gathered together. And this is likely referencing those that are involved in the process of seeking reconciliation. That's the context in which Jesus says these things. And he's he's already referred to two or three in verses 16 and 17. But as I indicated earlier, I believe these are representative of the church. So then, in any gathering, in his name, in the process of discipline, That's the context. He is in the midst. Hang on to that because two or three are in the process of the discipline, right? Which we saw last week. Well, let me just pause here. I I, I hope you get the significance of this, but how necessary this is that Christ is in the midst of us. Because it is his presence that makes us unique. In the world. And so let's not. Because I'm not devoting a whole message to that idea. Let's not quickly dismiss that idea. In fact, nothing else that's said here in verses 18 and 19 are of any real significance or matter if Christ is not in our midst. In fact, I conclude if Christ is not, if we're not gathering his name and Christ is not in our midst, none of the rest of it really does matter. And I don't even think there's any truth to it for us. In other words, this is the foundation. Verse 20 for that's the explanation. That's why verses 18 and 19 matter and are and have significance. You see, And so verse 18. There is this idea of church authority here. And church authority is dependent upon functioning in the name of Jesus and with Jesus in our midst by his spirit. Verse 18 says, assuredly, I say to you, corporately, I say to you, whatever you corporately bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Literally, this is whatever you bind. That is restrict authoritatively restrict, that's the word, whatever you bind, whatever you bind on earth will be, it's a separate word, will be, and then bound is a separate word, which literally is, and it sounds weird for us to say it this way, will be having been bound in heaven. Okay, hang on to that. He repeats it. And whatsoever you loose, so you unrestrict, you lift the restriction. Are you hearing church discipline there? You lift it. 
whatever you loose on earth will be having been loosed in heaven. So what right does a church have to render such judgment as given in verse 17? Because in verse 17, if he refuses even, this is one of the reasons why verse 18, I think, says what it says. Even, this is a big deal when you ignore the church. If he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector, a publican. Who gives you the right church to treat someone like that? The answer is verses 18 through 20. The church that disciplines in the manner prescribed here by our head has the approval of heaven. In other words, heaven is not getting its approval from us. Now, if you read it the way our English translation gives it, it kind of sounds like that. You know, assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. So you bind it on earth and then God will take his cues from you. And he'll bind it in heaven. That, that's not the point that's being made. We are functioning under the authority of God on earth as we care for one another in the church. And so as we are doing this, as we are carrying out the instructions of our head, our loving, caring head, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we carry out these instructions, it's not just official business. It's functioning with the authority of heaven here upon this earth. The point is not that earth controls heaven, but as we follow the directive of the head of the church, we have heaven's backing. And I'm going to tell you something. This is really, really important, especially for me, because it's uncomfortable to carry out the terms Jesus gives. It's uncomfortable. And if I didn't think that I had heaven's backing, I wouldn't do it. And that's one of the reasons why I believe we should be very slow in carrying out most matters of discipline in the church. God has not called us to be quick. He's called us to be like Him. Long-suffering, right? Slow. To anger, if you could even call this anger on our part. We're, just, we're doing what He says do. But we're reflecting Him in doing it. And our authority is not grounded in the fact that we just have a, a you know, DBACBC. You know, we have, we have documents filed with the state where the state recognizes us as a church and therefore we must be a... No, no. No. The state actually has zero to do with us being a church. That is all connected to Jesus Christ, our head. That's where our authority comes from. Now, listen, because sometimes when we hear this word church authority, we cringe because there are those situations where there's been dominant, tyrannical kind of authority that's been exercised. And when I look back over my long time of being a pastor, I frankly have to question some of the my own leadership in some discipline processes in the past. I say I question it. I'm not saying I 
I, I think it's all wrong. I'm just saying, I have to question. And I would say if we're not at least questioning, then maybe we're moving in a kind of arrogance that Jesus is warning us against, really. This is not an unrestricted statement of authority for any church decision. This isn't a blank check. This is not a blank check any more than verse 19 is a blank check for prayer. You know, just find somebody that will agree with you and you go pray and God's going to give it to you. That's not what verse 19 is saying any more than verse 18 is saying every decision that a church makes has heaven's approval. No, the church, just like every individual believer, is bound. What are we bound by? The Word of Christ. Can a church be wrong? Absolutely. A church can be wrong. I don't know when the last time we as a church have actually admitted that. I mean, as a church, where we, you know, we really didn't handle that in the best of ways. Maybe we ought to when it happens. A church can be wrong. But we shouldn't do it just to be doing it. It ought to be clear that we weren't walking in step with the Spirit. We really weren't walking in the light of Christ. But when that happens, we ought to be honest enough, loving enough to admit it. You see, we can only bind and loose with heaven's blessing upon the authority of Christ's words. Mr. Spurgeon put it this way, each church has the keys of his own door. When those keys are rightly turned by the assembly below, the act is ratified above. I think he's right. And so church authority exists by way of heaven's authority, mediated through Christ's instruction through the apostles. Now, I read 1 Corinthians 5 earlier. That was a discipline situation. That was a binding, a kind of binding that was placed, a restriction. This person putting, being put out of the fellowship, the community of the saints there in Corinth. Now, I want to flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. What about lifting that? What about loosing that restriction. We have this example, I think, here in Second Corinthians chapter two and verse six. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. Isn't that interesting? The language there, the majority of what? What do you all think? I think it's the church. The church. Is sufficient for such a man. In other words, in other words, he suffered enough. It was punishment. But it was punishment intended for the recovery, right? Not for the, not for the destruction of the man, the eternal destruction, or for all, we'll never let him back in the church. No! So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him. But preacher, do you know what he or she did? Lest perhaps such an one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. 
Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to Him. Oh, I can't love anybody who did anything like that. Do you hear what's going on there? For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Not only in carrying out the first instructions, which was put that wicked man out. But loose that restriction. Lift it. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven That one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Listen to this. Lest Satan should take an advantage of us. For we're not ignorant of his devices. This is a big deal. So brethren, we're under Christ's authority. Not our own. And we need to function both in the binding and the loosing. Under Christ as he has ordained. With that spirit of love which works itself out in the expression of forgiveness and ultimately reconciliation. But hear this, the decisions that we make together on earth in matters of discipline have heaven's approval and heaven is brought together with earth in this. You see that in verse 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. We are the visible expression of the invisible kingdom and the invisible God. He's seen in the church as we're functioning in the name of Christ under His authority. Then, just quickly, verse 19. He continues. This is not a, it's not disconnected here. Again, He says, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth, Concerning anything that they ask or any matter. It will be done for them by my father in heaven. So he's acknowledging his father. And then the my name in verse 20 is connecting himself with his father. And you have access to the father, to my father through me. And he's your father because of your relationship to me. We, you come into that relationship. It's all tied together. See, this is all relational language here. And you see in verse 19 then that agreement in prayer is the goal for the church. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth, we don't have to wait till we get to heaven. We might think we do, but we don't. Agree on earth. Concerning anything, any matter that they ask. Now, while verse 19 has a broader application, anything here is any matter related to what Jesus is talking about here. And it's sin caused conflict. This may help you. Did me anyway. And the same word is used in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 1. The word that's translated anything concerning anything in first Corinthians six and verse one. And it's the kind of the same context. He says, dare any of you having a matter. That's the word anything. 
And, and it refers to any matter of business or anything. It, dare any of you having a matter against another? Do you go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? That's the church. So, so Jesus is talking about the conflicts and the things that go on in the context of a church. I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning any matter of this nature, that they ask, so the prayers involved, there's some who say that's not prayer, I believe it is prayer. It's a word that's used for prayer. It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. I say to you that if two of you agree, this is not just a surface agreement that Jesus has in mind. The word here, if you, well, I'm not going to give you Greek, but if you heard the Greek word, you would hear symphony. That's the word agree. In other words, this isn't just some surfacey agreement like find somebody that'll, you know, put a stamp on what you're saying. Well, so and so agrees with me. That's not the point. The point is, you are in harmony. You are in symphony. On this matter, you are together in mind and spirit. And you're that way in prayer. And Jesus says, my Father in heaven hears and responds to united prayers of those who are together in the name of His Son. Verse, you, he, the explanation in verse 20 is tied to verse 19. For where two or three are gathered together in my name. There's a united effort in prayer. Now let me ask you this. What keeps us from that symphony? What keeps us from agreeing? Maybe that we have just legitimate difference with somebody over our conclusions, but the point is you are, we're talking about in this matter right here of discipline, someone, there's a matter, there's a conflict, and we're seeking to resolve it. Prayer is involved. Unresolved conflict due to sin divides us. And by the way, it doesn't just divide in a church. It doesn't just divide the two that are having the conflict. It has ripple effects, doesn't it? Factions are formed. You don't believe it? Read 1 Corinthians. And we end up praying against one another. I mean, that happens in other contexts. I don't want to be lighthearted here, but you know, I'm praying for rain because we need it for the crops and somebody else is praying for sunshine because they have a really important outdoor wedding. You know what I mean? I don't see that as necessarily praying against one another there. But what about in church? Where we're seeking a solution to a conflict. We need to be able to seek to come together. The Father is hearing us as we pray. And when two people come together. Now you can pray on your own. I'm praying this way. I'm praying that way. But Jesus said, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning this any matter that they ask. So they are asking. They're asking together. 
The Father's hearing. But if you're praying against, the, the Father is hearing conflicting petitions. And I believe in the context of the church, in this matter of which we're speaking, the Spirit is grieved with such division. The two here. We might say that they're the two in conflict. Again, he doesn't define it very well for us. Maybe the two that are in conflict where they've worked the matter out and they're actually praying together. Wouldn't that be tremendous? Or it may be the two that are trying to work on, you know, the witnesses trying to work together to resolve the conflict. The point is this. A church or representatives of a church, the two or three, that experiences Christ in our midst, will seek agreement so that we can pray together before our Father in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the matter under consideration. And you know what happens when we come together like that? Christ is praying with us. He is in the midst of them. The Spirit is helping us. Have you had that experience before when you've been had some sort of conflict, but it's been resolved and you prayed together and you just sensed the Spirit of Christ with you? The flesh or your own personal agenda is not controlling the prayer or the relationship. But truly, what is right unto Christ, that's what's motivating us. And even if the matter must go to discipline where the person is removed, your heart is still there and there is an agreement as we pray in regards to that. Jesus says, in fact, I, 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 maybe I'm stepping out on a limb here, but I would say that we probably shouldn't move forward. Or, well, we should move forward carefully. And there's a lot of discussion that's needed on what I'm about to say, perhaps. But, but I don't know that any church should make a, as a church, make some final decision on a matter of discipline unless there is agreement. And or unless there is clear evidence that the disagreement is sinful. And what does Jesus say? My Father in heaven responds to this kind of united prayer on earth. Sin caused conflicts get in the way of effectual prayer. David's, David, um, your message from uh, James 5 verse 16. Go read it again in the context of this passage. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Sin caused conflicts need to be dealt with. That could be one reason why prayer is ineffectual, ineffective. Jesus says, my father will hear, will hear, my father in heaven will hear you if you're praying on earth with this agreement. When we resolve such conflicts with repentant and forgiving spirits, we are then able to pray with one accord. And brethren, when we are praying with one accord, heaven comes down, as it were, heaven comes down to earth. And you can see that. There's several verses, but let me read you two of them. What were the disciples doing as they were waiting for heaven to come down? 
in Acts chapter 1. What were they doing? You know what they were doing. They were praying. But they weren't just praying. They were praying with one accord, it says. With one accord. They were continuing in one accord in prayer. And then you skip over to chapter 4. There are other one accords in chapter 2. But skip over to chapter 4. And there again, they're praying. And it says, the church in Jerusalem, they raised their voice to God with one accord. And they prayed. By the way, they didn't pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit. But that's exactly what happened. Think about that. As they were praying with one accord, God gave that blessing. Satan knows a divided church and divided believers is a weak representation of Christ in the world. He knows that. And he's a devilish fiend. I hate him. Sorry. Maybe I shouldn't have burst out like that, but I had an encounter yesterday that provoked that kind of expression. And maybe this will carry over to today. It had nothing to do with what happened yesterday and any, anything. So don't, those of you who had any interaction with me yesterday, don't read anything into that. That was me interacting. He will seek to sow seeds of division. It's not just to make you miserable. It's to bring dishonor to the name of Christ. He hates Jesus Christ. He hates God. And He hates you if you're His. And the world is watching. And it's very possible that the world will conclude that we're no different from them by the way that we deal with one another. And brethren, it must be different. We need to listen to our, our beloved Savior here. He's saying these things out of our best interest. And for His glory, don't let weeds of unrepentant, unconfessed, and unforgiven sin grow among us. Don't let it. Don't let it. For the sake of His name, whom we represent as His body on earth, let's submit ourselves to Him in a fresh way. I mean, that's, you know, we've talked about revival. There's a lot of things you can say about revival, but that's one thing that I think about, that there will be that kind of fresh sense of relationship, functioning in His name, with Him in our midst, fulfilling His will as we are united in prayer. Father in heaven, I...